The following message was given to the North Young Adult Group at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church slash Young Adults. So what I did is I prepared a document that's 15 pages long with about 50 footnotes, and it's in your inbox. Right, Daniel? So you all have it if you want to access it on your phone. You don't have to. But the reason I did that is I, I'm going to recommend a bunch of resources, and I didn't want to print out 15 pages per person, and that way you've, you've got it all right there. So if you want to refer to it as we go, I'm going to follow that uh, along the way. So uh, when Daniel left, go ahead. Oh, what does group mean? <laughs> okay. It's a new thing. In our it's a new thing. <laughs> I can't keep up, man. Uh, no, seriously, that's part of what this is about. I don't know how you guys keep up with, with cultural changes. Uh, what I do to try to keep up day to day, I listen on weekday mornings to the World and Everything in It podcast and the briefing by Al Mohler. Uh, so that's Monday to Friday. I follow the headlines for Babylon B <laughs> and not the B. Uh, and some other stuff, but that, that's kind of how I keep track day to day. But what I what I find helpful is to back up and to get a big picture to read books that are reflecting on years at a time, not just you know what's the last twenty four hour headline you can, can read about. So uh, as I as I thought, what, what what's a way I could serve you as you talk about culture? I thought, well, how about if I recommend some resources that have served me really well recently? So what I'm going to do is recommend four resources by non Christians and four by Christians that have just helped me make sense of our cultural moment. And you guys are ages 18 to 29, I think, which means that this cultural transformation that's happened has been right in your adult time. And it's for some of you, it's all you've known as an adult. Um, I'm not that old. I, so I've been married for 17 years. We have four kids. So I'm a little bit older than you, I think. Uh, but what I've noticed is in the last five, seven years, the cultural transformation leftward has been at warp speed uh, compared to how it's gone in the past. Have you guys noticed that from your perspective a little bit? Okay, so I'll give you today. Again, I want to focus on book, but a headline I saw today is that the NFL had an advertisement saying the NFL was gay. Like That would have never happened when I was in my 20s. That would be a way to kill the NFL. So uh, I was talking to some businessmen this month who were telling me, uh, they're men in our church, saying they have never felt so much pressure in the corporate world to come out uh, in support of LGBT during Pride Month, somehow with your company. Uh, the, 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 the pressure financially to make it, to, to, to identify with that group, is so, uh, so strong right now in a way it's never been. So, you know, there's that. Of course, what happened uh, since George Floyd's death last year and then through the summer, all kinds of cultural streams came together that made some people go, what happened? And I did a lot of processing, like we all did, and I'm going to recommend some books to you. Now, uh, before I tell you what the books are, uh, just know they're all critiquing and explaining, kind of uh, saying there's a problem here on the left. Uh, there, there are other problems on the right, uh, but problems like Christian nationalism or like uh, uh, kind of fringe conspiracy theories like QAnon. And my sense, my pastoral sense, is that people in our context, that's just not the danger. Uh, but there is a pressure to, to kind of what I I've heard someone say it this way to punch right and coddle left, uh, to to desire the approval from the left, and 
not, not as much from the right. There's a mindset people have. It's like anything to the left, it's like, okay, I'll be nice to you. Anything to the right, you're a fundamentalist, I'm going to punch. And it's all over a spectrum. People can have this mindset. So my sense is that there's a lot of, of dangers coming from the left that I'm trying to understand in our culture. And that's why I'm going to recommend these four resources by, by non-Christians, first of all. You with me, everyone, so far? Okay, so first one is The Coddling of the American Mind. Anybody read that book? Uh, that's not what I asked. Uh, uh, so one person. Do you guys read books? I forget. Okay. Right. Okay. Does it have a documentary? Uh, is it on Netflix? Okay. Uh, so you don't have to read these books. By the way, I, I'm not expecting you, like, you need to read these to be a faithful Christian. Not at all am I expecting that from you. Um, I thought this could serve you, and I'll give you the crib version so you don't have to read the book. But if you want to, maybe you'll, you'll do that. So this is by two guys, Greg Lukianoff. Yeah, he's an attorney who specializes in free speech. Lukianoff. And Jonathan Haidt. He's a social psychologist. And their book argues against what they call these three great untruths that have become culturally common. So here's the first one. The untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Two is the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. And then third is the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good and evil people. So that's, that's the core of the book. That's her thesis. And I just want to point out a couple highlights from the book that helped me kind of understand better what's happening in our cultural moment and also how some Christians are responding to the cultural moment. So there's two things going on. It's what's happening in the world. And then others, in our circles, how people are responding to that. And this is helping me make sense of both of those. So the, the first excerpt is about the word trauma. It's a long block quote. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll boil it down. Basically say, uh, the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders used to define the term trauma very specifically to uh, refer to something that's traumatic. That wasn't helpful, was it? It's, it's uh, oh, let me give you some, some highlights here. It, it's objective. It's not subjective. And it's things like war, rape, and torture. So, uh, for example, some people might say that it's traumatic to get divorced or for your, your spouse to die uh, of natural causes. Well, that's hard, but, but historically that's not trauma. That's not traumatic. Uh, trauma is, is unusual, it's rare, and what they, they show is that by the early 2000s, that concept, the way people define that term, has started to shift, to change, it became more subjective. And notice, at the very end of the quote, I've got it in bold, uh, it was not for anyone else to decide what counted as trauma, bullying, or abuse. If it felt like that to you, trust your feelings. If a person reported that an event was traumatic or bullying or abusive, his or her subjective assessment was increasingly taken as sufficient evidence. So this is a, a new thing in, in our culture that's become more common. And maybe to some of you, you think, I thought it's always been that way. But that's that's a shift, a major shift, and that helps me uh, because many people in our culture, and that includes some Christians, are claiming to be victims of trauma or abuse in line with these new definitions. So that's, that's just helping me make sense of what's going on around us. Now, footnote eight, I should just say this. We should oppose all abuse if that refers to the biblical category oppression. So that means sinfully treating someone in a cruel and violent way, like Pharaoh oppresses God's people at the beginning of the book of Exodus. So my concern here is that trauma and abuse are what I call Gumby words. The little 
figure of Gumby that you could stretch in all these ways. So a Gumby word, it, it's something you can stretch to encompass many circumstances. Uh, and, and for trauma and abuse, people are doing that with those words in a way that makes them so vague uh, and flexible that they can be unhelpful and makes it hard to minister to people who really are undergoing trauma and abuse. So that's, that's one way this book taught me. Second one is uh, what the authors call an absurd regulation of speech on American college campuses. How many of you went to a college campus that was secular? So not Northwestern or Bethel? Okay. So I'm curious, as, as we look over this, tell, uh, don't tell me, we're going to do questions at the end, but I'm curious if this resonates with you. So they're talking about speech codes. Um, and I'll just jump right to the bold words. Uh, if you feel offended, then a punishable offense must have occurred. Speech codes like, like these that they're talking about teach the untruth of fragility. Uh, they communicate that offensive speech or inappropriate laughter might be so damaging that administrators must step in to protect vulnerable and fragile students and they empower college administrators to, to ensure that authority figures are always available to resolve verbal conflicts. Sound familiar? So that insight really helped me because I'm, I'm viewing, observing many people in our culture, and that includes some Christians, who essentially argue this way. Uh, so it's a syllogism. I'm hurt, therefore you're wrong, or you're unjust, or you're evil. Or if you want to use this, the theological category of sin, I'm hurt, therefore you sinned. I'm hurt, therefore you sinned. Now, that logic doesn't hold. That's it's false. It's not valid. But a lot of people use that that thinking when they feel hurt. So that this seeing this, like when I read a book that points it out, it makes me think, okay, I'm not crazy. This is happening everywhere. Uh, so that was helpful. That's the first book. And if you have questions along the way, you know, write them down at the end. We'll, we'll do questions. Second book, it's called The Rise of Victimhood Culture, Microaggressions, Safe Spaces, and the New Culture Wars. Two authors, Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, both professors of sociology. So uh, they define microaggressions as small slights and insults, sometimes invisible to the person perpetuating them. So here's a really common one. If you ask someone, where are you from? Uh, a lot of people would call that a microaggression because it's like, what, you don't think I'm from here? You, you, you think I'm a foreigner? You, what's wrong with you? So all, and the person might just be uh, the sweetest of intentions, you know, like, where are you from? That, that's exactly what they meant. They meant nothing evil by it. Uh, but uh, people can read into that, oh, Ill, Ill motives, ill intent, or et cetera. So it's a, it's a slight, small insult, sometimes invisible. Now, some people oppose this whole way of thinking. That I'd be one of them. Uh, because microaggression complaints, I'm quoting them, violate many long-standing social norms, such as those encouraging people to have thick skin, brush off slights, and charitably interpret the intentions of others. So in other words, the people who oppose this would say that a person's intentions matter. Intentions matter. And, and they explain this in this block quote, quote here. I'm going to read this one because this one was so interesting to me. Okay, so microaggression complaints arise from a culture of victimhood in which individuals and groups display a high sensitivity to slight. They have a tendency to handle conflicts through complaints to authorities and other third parties, and they seek to cultivate an image of being victims who deserve assistance. Does that sound familiar? Okay. Some of you even didn't go to a secular college, and it sounds familiar. <laughs> it's, it's everywhere. 
Now, this they, these authors say the new moral culture we shall see differs sharply from other moral cultures. And they talk about two, cultures of honor and cultures of dignity. So cultures of honor are where people are sensitive to slight, but they handle their conflicts aggressively. You know, so it'd be like a guy who's, he feels like he's slightly insulted. It's like, let's go. Oh, you, you want to fight. Let's take it out right now. Uh, so they're, they're sensitive, and then when they deal with that by aggressively going at the person. That's different than what we were just talking about where you're sensitive to slight, and then you go to a third party to get, to get the person. And then the other culture they talk about is cultures of dignity, where people ignore slights and insults. So this, this debate about microaggressions, they say, arises from a clash between dignity culture and the newer culture of victimhood. Really, this is, this is fascinating to me. The next paragraph, uh, complaints about microaggressions combine the sensitivity to slight that we see in honor, honor cultures with the willingness to appeal to authorities and other third parties that we see in dignity cultures. And victimhood culture differs from both honor and dignity cultures in highlighting rather than downplaying the complaints of victimhood. In other words, in this victimhood culture, it's almost a badge to, to be a victim. It gives you social standing, clout, influence. Uh, it makes you more important. gives you more power to be a victim. And there are all these, these different ways, these microaggressions that trigger victims. Uh, they, they're called mansplaining, white-splaining, straight-splaining, slut-shaming, fat-shaming, body-shaming, cultural appropriation, heteronormativity, cis-normativity, misgendering, cis-sexism, transphobia, and toxic masculinity. Whew. All right, so those are, those are all types of triggers. And then they, they say that this micro, microaggression complaints are similar to and different from other ways of handling conflict. So you, it's common to publicly air grievances to outsiders in this culture. And then second, these complaints, microaggression complaints, are attempts to demonstrate a pattern of injustice. And then third, the complaints are complaints about the domination and oppression of cultural minorities. Now, uh, jump down a little bit here. Those who combine many victim identities will claim to be accorded greater moral status. That's kind of intersects with what we call intersectionality. There's a footnote 19. There's a good article by Rosaria Butterfield talking about that. So all that to say, these insights about victimhood culture have really helped me because I'm seeing it all around in our culture, even in some Christians. And to, to read this book by two non-Christians, just explaining it sociologically, wow, that, that's just really helpful to understand what's happening. This is a new thing in our culture, and it, it was helpful for me. Here's a third book, The Madness of Crowds, uh, Gender, Identity, Morality. So it's by Douglas Murray. He's a gay British journalist, and just warning, his language is pretty salty and sometimes explicit. Just has four chapters, gay, women, race, and trans. And the dude just goes at it, like no filter, totally not politically correct, and just shows how crazy our culture is. Uh, it, like an example of this, um, I watched a five-minute video today by the Babylon Bee, and it's so funny. It's, uh, it came out a couple days ago, but I, I didn't see it. But it's this interview of a guy who's kind of like an overweight, middle-aged man, and he's like, yeah, I used to identify as a motorcyclist, but now I realize I'm a bicycle. And, and he's like in all these bicycle races on his motorcycle, whooping everybody. And everyone else is afraid to call him out because they'll get persecuted. So he's like winning all the races. He's on the cover of Vogue magazine. He's on the cover. Of, like, he's getting all this attention for being the best bicyclist in the world. And he's riding a motorcycle. 
Uh, you can fill in the blanks. Uh, uh, anyway, okay, so uh, this book, just in that kind of satirical way, it, can, it repeatedly highlights how our mainstream culture is hypocritical, illogical, and intolerant as it views society as this system of power relations. And I, his book just helped me understand better our culture's groundswell and activism for things like LGBT and critical theory and critical race theory. He calls it the madness of crowds and shows how that's contributed to how our culture is rapidly changing. And here's the fourth book, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. This is by two atheists, and they're philosophically liberal, and they are socially liberal, uh, so they support liberal feminism, LGBT equality, they talk about sexual minorities, they use that phrase a lot, uh, they, but they also oppose what they call social, the social justice movement, or wokeism, their words. And this is a really fascinating book. They, they, what they do is they trace how influential people have applied postmodernism to post-colonial theory, queer theory, critical race theory, and intersectionality, feminism and gender studies, and disability and fat studies. And yes, that's a thing. It's an academic discipline. And they show how it all connects with the social justice movement. So I'm, I'm going to read this, this block quote. It's important. There's nothing complex about the overarching idea of intersectionality or the theories upon which it is built. Nothing could be simpler. It does the same thing over and over again. Look for the power imbalances, bigotry, and biases that it assumes must be present, and then pick at them. It reduces everything to one single variable, one single topic of conversation, one single focus and interpretation. Prejudice, as understood under the power dynamics asserted by theory or critical theory. Thus, for example, disparate outcomes can have one and only one explanation, and it's prejudicial bigotry. The question is just identifying how it manifests in the given situation. Thus, it always assumes that in every situation, some form of theoretical prejudice exists, and we must find a way to show evidence of it. In that sense, it's a tool, a practice, designed to flatten all complexity and nuance so that it can promote identity politics in accord with its vision. Ooh. Devastating. And I think exactly right. Exactly right. Um, really, really interesting book. They, des they describe, by the way, critical race theory and intersectionality as, quote, ending racism by seeing it everywhere. That's, that's how they summarize that theory. Now, I, I first read this book in September of last year. So that's right after the June, July, August of, our, of Minneapolis last year. Remember those days? Uh, and this book just crisply helped me understand at a moment when the ideologies of Robin DiAngelo and Ivan Max Kendi were becoming how-to manuals in our culture, I read this book, I was like, oh, really helpful. Uh, and it also helped me make sense of what's happening in Reformed conservative evangelicalism. Okay, so those are the four non-Christian resources. I'm going to transition to some Christian resources. I'm, I'm going along on a good clip here, so we'll have some time for Q&A. We'll end at 8.30. Four Christian resources. First, the resource is just a guy. His name is Neil Shendy. So footnote 31, you can just click that link and go to his website. Uh, I'll tell you about him. So uh, he earned his PhD in theoretical chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley. 
And then in 2015, after working at Duke for five years, he began focusing on homeschooling his children. And he's a member of Summit Church, pastored by J.D. Greer. And uh, so he's he actually doesn't have a Ph.D. in these matters. And some people try to discount him for that. Like, oh, you, you can't speak to these things because you're not credentialed. But he's actually really smart. I'm a, I'm a friend I'm a friend with him or acquaintances, but also a friend of one of his close friends. And this close friend of his says he's the most brilliant guy he knows. He's, he's, he thinks he's a genius. Very smart dude. And he has read all the primary, well, a lot of the primary sources on critical theory, all the major books. He's reviewed them on his website. So helpful. And, I, and the footnotes there, footnote like 33, I linked to some of his helpful book reviews, sampling of his articles. Super, super helpful. So in my opinion, he is characteristically fair, clear, penetrating, discerning, reasonable, kind. Let's, let's commend his, his ministry to you. Do any of you know who I'm talking about? Have you read any of this stuff? A few of you, okay. About a third of you. So I highly recommend his, his work, uh, especially he's helped me understand critical theory and critical race theory better. Now, he's not the only one addressing that. I, I note here that others include Thaddeus Williams, so footnote 35, uh, Vadi Bakum, footnote 36, and Owen Strand, footnote 37. I've also attempted to address the issue of ethnic harmony. So there are a lot of people writing on these things and speaking on them that are helpful. Uh, but in my view, the most helpful this in, in surveying the literature and understanding what's going on is, is Neil Shendi. So I, I commend him to you. Second, second resource is Joe Rigney. Again, it's a, just a person, but this is more specific than Neil Shendi. It's Joe Rigney specifically on untethered empathy. So Joe, have you... Do you guys know Joe at all? Do you know him? Okay. He's, he's a local guy. He's actually the president now of Bethlehem College and Seminary. That just uh, transition happened last month. I know we're still in June. Happened on June 1st, this month. Uh, he's a pastor of Cities Church in St. Paul, and he's a teacher at Desiring God. So here's the thing. Most people assume that, that empathy is always virtuous, and what he did is create waves by referring to the sin of empathy, uh, which made it, some people misunderstood him. Like, oh, so empathy is always sinful. And that's not his point at all. It's like you can talk about the sin of anger. Well, well Jesus was angry. So they're just saying that you, you can have this, this emotion in a sinful way. So the way I like to speak of it, and the way he, he does often now, is to put an adjective in front of the word empathy. Like an adjective like untethered. That's, that's my favorite adjective to put in front of it when we're talking about the sinful kind of empathy. Untethered empathy. So he distinguishes between sympathy and empathy. So he defines sympathy as showing compassion. That's really good. And he defines empathy, the, the, the bad kind, the untethered kind, as joining people in their darkness and distress and refusing to make any judgments. And then he uses this analogy of someone sinking in quicksand. So you could show sympathy by attempting to help him get out of the pit. So you might hold on firmly to a branch while you reach in with your other hand. Or you could show an untethered empathy, which is just jump in the pit with him, which isn't going to help him or you. And in the interview that, uh, with Doug Wilson, Rigney gives some people the impression that he's inclined to disbelieve women who claim to have experienced abuse, and that is not what Rigney intended to communicate. His point is that when someone comes to a pastor with an allegation, for example, uh, then the pastor should communicate that he is for that person, but not that he's necessarily unconditionally committed to taking that person's view. So a lot of people have this, this viewpoint. They come to a pastor, it's like booking a lawyer. Uh, it's like contractually, okay, I'm, I'm now, I'm hiring you to defend me. And that's, pastors are not lawyers. 
uh, pastors are supposed to be impartial, truth people who, who are accountable to God. And uh, when someone claims to be abused, we want to listen sympathetically and lean in, even trust and verify. Uh, but what we can't do is an untethered empathy, uh, as, as Rigney des- describes. And uh, what he did after that interview is he wrote four articles for Desiring God that clarify his intentions. I footnote that, footnote 41. Highly, highly commend those to you. And what basically what he's criticizing is what C.S. Lewis elsewhere calls blackmail. John Piper calls it emotional blackmail. Uh, but Lewis has this, this uh, scene. He describes how a child sulked in the attic instead of apologizing in order to provoke others to give in and apologize to the sulking child. So there's so much more I can say about this, but I'll just move on to another one. But Joe Rigney on Untethered Empathy, so helpful to me. Third, this is a book, big one. Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Anyone read this one yet? One? Some of it? Yeah, it's fantastic. The audiobook on Audible is great, because Carl reads it, and he's British. He sounds smart. <laughs> he is smart. So uh, he, uh, here's a block quote. He, he's attempting to answer this question. How has the culture, excuse me, how has the current highly individualistic, iconoclastic, sexually obsessed, and materialistic mindset come to triumph in the West? Or to put the question in a more pressing and specific fashion, why does the sentence, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, make sense? Not simply to those who have sat in post-structuralist and queer theory seminars, but why does it make sense to my neighbors, to people I pass on the street, to coworkers who have no particular political axe to grind and who are blissfully unaware of the rebarbative jargon and arcane concepts of Michael Foucault and his myriad uh, epigons and incomprehensible imitators. He's such a good writer. So he just, he, he describes, he, this isn't like a, a treatise where he's trying to give an answer. He's just trying to say, as a historian, here's what's happened. And he methodically and dispassionately dissects and traces the ideas and influences uh, in the past to show how he got from there to here. So people he, he, had, he studies are Rousseau, Wordsworth, Shelley, Blake, Nietzsche, Marx, Darwin, Freud. And then he shows how this revolution has triumphed with eroticism in art and pop culture and expressive individualism in law and ethics and education. And then with transgenderism and the politics of the sexual revolution. It's all connected. I find this so fascinating. He, he, he pulls this out in the book. So the LGBT, he shows how it's like this kind of uncomfortable alliance, and the T's are now eating the LGBs uh, in triumph. It's really, really interesting. Uh, so in, in our culture, people tend to see identity as a matter of psychological and sexual choice, and this book helps explain that. My wife listened to the whole thing, too. She loved it. Fourth and final resource, and then we'll have some Q&A. Fourth is Kevin DeYoung's four-part taxonomy of reformed evangelicalism. So Kevin DeYoung is senior pastor of Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. He's associate professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. And in this article, it's called Why Reformed Evangelicalism Has Splintered, Four Approaches to Race, Politics, and Gender. He's describing what's happening in our circles. So when I say our circles, I mean like, you know, Bethlehem, T4G, TGC, uh, that kind of world. Do you know what I'm talking about mostly? Okay. So it's reformed-ish and conservative, theological, robust, that kind of kind of group. And he, what DeYoung observes is, you know, since about 2016 when Trump was elected president, 
something happened. A spoilering happened. From about 2006 to 16, it was, just, it was like glory days of our, of our movement. I don't know if you guys remember that time as much, but it was just, uh, a joyful unity and excitement uh, going to these, these conferences and, and, and making alliances and connections with people all over the world. And after 2016 and the last six years, that's dissolving rapidly. So in this article, DeYoung's just trying to ask, what happened? And he's, he's saying, I, I'm seeing at least four different teams, he calls them. Uh, he says that many of these old networks and alliances are falling apart and they're reforming along new lines. And he, he gives each of them an adjective and they're positive adjectives. He's trying to give adjectives that each member of the team would say, yeah, that, that's me. So he's got contrite for view one, second is compassionate, third is careful, and fourth is courageous. And this, he's trying to pick an adjective that corresponds to these assessments. So we actually had a, a secret meeting, about 15 of us, 13, 15 of us, uh, and we met here actually in the room right down the hall for a couple days, and Kevin presented this. And, uh, and when Piper saw it, he's like, I want to be all four. It's like Kevin's like, no, 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 no. He's adding. It doesn't work that way. So, because the adjectives are all good adjectives. So you're reading like, yeah, I want to be all of those. Uh, so he's trying to say there, um, there are really are four groups that kind of clump into these these categories. Uh, so what DeYoung does is he kind of shows how this maps out on current issues regarding race and politics and gender. I've got some tables in the document I sent to you. This, these tables I found to be really helpful. So for the views one, two, three, four, that's contrite, compassionate, careful, courageous, he just, asked, just walks through how do those views uh, take a stand on issues like white supremacy, systemic racism, police shootings, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, and just compare and contrast them all right down the line. Really, really interesting. And then he does the same thing for politics and gender. Uh, Trump, Christian nationalism, wearing masks, sexual abuse, and gender rules. And it's just so fascinating how they just kind of all clump together in those four views for those issues. I find this fascinating. Okay, so um, are you familiar with that article, by the way? Okay. I want to say more about it. Maybe we'll see in the Q&A. Basically, um, I want to just reflect a little bit on, on this. Uh, Doug Wilson, uh, on June 21st, just a little over a week ago, wrote an article on DeYoung's article, and he called it a fine descriptive piece. I agree with, with Wilson on that. that. This is a fantastic piece. Uh, and Wilson says, I agree with all of it, except for two sentences. And, and it's these sentences. DeYoung says, the loudest voices tend to be ones and fours, which makes sense because they tend to see many of these issues in the starkest terms and often collide with each other in ways that make a lot of online noise. The ones and fours can also be the most separatist with some voices among the ones encouraging an exodus from white evangelical spaces, so it's a hashtag, leave loud. And then some voices among the fours are encouraging the woke to be excommunicated. That's DeYoung. Now DeYoung is on his chart, the one, two, three, four, he's about a three, Wilson's about a four. And Wilson thinks that threes can be separatists by not associating with the fours in order to win the approval of the ones and the twos. Are you with me? Okay, I wrote it all out. It's, it's, it's black and white on the, on the document, okay? So I, I, think, I think DeYoung is right uh, that in general, ones and fours are the loudest and most separatist, and I also think Wilson's right that any of those positions can be separatists. So being a one or a four doesn't necessarily make you inherently more separatist than the others. Here's an example. Uh, some threes are 
vigilant not to recommend resources by fours or associate with fours. So, by the way, at Bethlehem, I'm guessing like North Campus, most of the pastors, I haven't asked them all. I'm guessing most of us are threes. I'd be about a three. Uh, personally, I'd be a three who is more sympathetic with fours, not so much with the ones and twos. Uh, that's just me. Um, so I, I know people who are also threes, though, who they don't, they don't want to be associated with the fours at all. They don't want to recommend their resources. They don't want to speak at their conferences. They don't want to invite them to speak at our conferences. They want a wall right there, but they treat the ones and twos a lot differently. So that, that's just, I find that interesting. That, that's that posture I mentioned earlier of, of punch right, coddle left. I can even see it with some of my, my friends. And I don't mean to, to pick on threes. Uh, I just told you I, I am one. Okay, so, so much more we could say there, but I want to leave time for a discussion. Just to conclude, the, the, these eight resources I'm commending to you have helped me make sense of our cultural moment and how Christians are responding to it, uh, including people in our churches and Christian schools and other institutions. And what Bethlehem has gone through in the last couple of years, it's happening everywhere. It's happening all over the country, all over the world. So uh, this is, if, if you're in a particular church context, and it's got to be just us. No, it, it's just happening everywhere. More importantly, uh, for just helping me understand what's going on in our world and make sense of our cultural moment, more importantly is that these resources have helped me in this complicated world to be discerning as I endeavor to hate what is evil and love what is good. So there are commands in the Bible that I want to obey. Commands like this, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I want to obey that. Or about this one from uh, Romans 12, 9. Uh, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Cleave to what is good. I want to, I want to obey that. Or First uh, John two fifteen. Don't love the world or the things in the world. I want to obey those commands. And one final note, then we'll open it up. Uh, as helpful as these resources are that I just commended to you, I don't want to imply that you need to read them and other resources like them to be a faithful Christian. You don't. You don't. Don't feel guilty if like you haven't read any of those books. You don't need to feel guilty. Um, the most helpful resource by far is the Bible, and I'm not just saying that. Uh, it is. There's nothing new under the sun, and you need to be saturated with the Bible for other resources to even be helpful. So those resources were helpful to me because I'm Bible-saturated. So if you're not Bible-saturated and go to those resources, they might not help you as much. The Bible's got to be the bedrock beneath all your other resources, the lens through which you view reality and put this complicated world in focus. It's the truth that identifies falsehood. So it's, it's the only book that is God-breathed and entirely true and our final authority and sufficient and necessary. Uh, as Piper often says, it's the only must-read book. Uh, people often say, this article's must-read, that book's must-read. And he's always like, no, there's only one must-read book. And, and it's the book we must believe and love and submit to and obey and be grateful for and read humbly and read carefully and prayerfully and routinely. Thank you for listening to this message from the Young Adult Ministry at Bethlehem Baptist Church, North Campus, in Moundsview, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at bethlehem.church/youngadults.